Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. All right, good morning. Uh, At this time, we'll go ahead and dismiss all of our three to five-year-olds to the little district. Uh, Jeremy will be leading them this morning, so let's pray for their hearts uh, that God would continue to do a work in their lives. Um, If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Luke chapter 4. We're going to be taking a look at the temptation of Jesus. Um, And I forgot to ask this. How are we doing this morning? We good? Great. Excellent. Fall has started. College football's back. That's awesome. Very exciting. My Gators won last night, so I'm preaching with more excitement versus anger, so that's a good thing. Um, Yeah. So uh, we're continuing in our uh, gospel series according to Luke, um, and looking at the temptations of Jesus and and why this part of Jesus' narrative is so important to our lives. So as you are turning to Luke, I want to read to you one of my favorite passages from Hebrews chapter 4 that I think will shine some light and show us why the temptation of Jesus is good news for our lives. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As we are continuing through this gospel series, we have been taking a look the last couple of weeks of how Jesus identifies with us as sinners. Yet as scripture reminds us, he identifies with us yet is without sin. In the last couple of weeks, we've seen through his baptism, as well as even through his genealogy, that he had to be, make, he had to be made like us in every respect. A couple of weeks ago, Dwayne talked about how Jesus' baptism, the, the main point of that was that he identified with us, that he was made like us. And then last week, as we looked at his lineage, what Luke was showing to us is that Jesus is truly the Son of Man, that he, he came all the way from the line of Adam, that he is just like us, yet without sin. And this is an important distinction that I want to bring to you guys very early this morning, is because when we walk through a passage like this, the temptations of Jesus, we can often think that Jesus was able to defeat temptation and sin because he was God, right? That he was fully divine. But that there's, one, there's this wonderful theological understanding called the hypostatic union that tells us that Jesus was fully God and fully man. And in his temptations, he takes on Satan and his schemes in his humanity. And his perfection and obedience, when we trust in him as Lord and Savior, is then imputed to us. That's where that perfection, that's where that obedience comes from, is Jesus' obedience in his humanness, in his being fully man. And as Hebrews reminds us, he did this for our sake, so that he could be a sympathetic high priest, so that he 
in our times of walking in the wilderness and, and walking through trials and temptations can empower us to defeat sin, but also so that He can give us assurance that He is with us and that He knows what it's like to be tempted and tried. The other thing that I want to draw your attention to is that Jesus comes from the line of Levi. If you notice that last week as we're walking through the lineage, it's important for us to recognize this, especially as we're walking into his temptations, because the tribe of Levi, Levi were set apart to be priests of Israel. And what a priest did in the Old Testament was that they were the mediators for Israel, speaking on their behalf working in the temple, offering sacrifices. So in essence, what a high priest was, as Julia talked about this morning early on, was an advocate. And this is what Jesus does for us as a great high priest, is that he advocates for us. He is a mediator for us. He stands between God and man so that even in our sin, even when we fail, even when we're tempted, God doesn't look at us and say, come on, get it together. He looks at Christ and his perfect work on our behalf. So as we walk into this temptation this week, as we, we look at this narrative story, I want us to see Jesus in his full humanity, coming from the line of David and from the line of Levi, that he would be our great high priest. But I will say, Hebrews 4 tends to bring up a question that makes me wonder every once in a while. And I, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Maybe you will now when you read that verse or when you read the temptations or when somebody tells you that Jesus understands what you're going through. How many of you, like me, might ask the question, how is that possible? Anyone? Has anyone asked the question, how is it possible that Jesus, who is perfect and pure and so holy, could relate to me, could relate to you. In today's passage, Luke gives us this answer. He can relate to us, not only because he was born like us, but he's experienced every temptation known to man in order that he could sympathize with us in our weaknesses. So he knows what it's like to be tempted in the flesh. He knows what it's like to be tempted from the world. He knows what it's like to be tempted from Satan and his schemes. And that's what I want to draw from this text this morning. That the temptation of Jesus gives us power and assurance when it comes to fighting the temptations of sin. I'll say that one more time. The temptation of Jesus gives us power and assurance when it comes to fighting our temptations to sin. We'll see this in this passage. Jesus gives us the tools and the power dwelt within us through the Holy Spirit to have victory over our sin. And as sinners, I, I hope that that excites you just first and foremost, right? To be able to have victory over your sin. Because how often do we just sit there and have temptations come into our lives and we roll over. And then, and then we get frustrated in ourselves because we keep running back to this struggle. We keep running back to the same sin over and over again. Jesus gives us power to have victory over sin. But not only that, he gives us assurance that even in our failure, even when we have struggles and fail in those struggles, when we give in to those temptations, 
He has mediated on our behalf. He has taken on the full weight and penalty of sin in order for us to be considered sons and daughters of God. And we are united to him in this sacrifice. So we have power and we have assurance when it comes to fighting temptation in our lives. So I hope you're encouraged by this word this morning. So let us pray, and then we'll jump into these temptations. Lord, you are good. Lord, that you would, as Philippians tells us, humble yourself and put on flesh in order to identify with us as sinners. Not only that, you would then give us an example, the tools and the power and the assurance to say no to sin, to have victory over it, and to live with joy, trusting in you. Help us to behold these truths from your word with awe and wonder. And may we continue to grow in our faith. To be able to fight sin to fight our flesh, to say no to the world, to defeat the schemes of Satan and all of the power that he, is, he has here on earth. Lord, we see through your word you've given that to us through your Holy Spirit. Give us eyes to see this morning and ears to hear this beautiful truth. For your glory and our joy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Luke starts off like this, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and when they were, and when they were ended, he was hungry. So I want to give us some of the circumstances that are going on real quick as Jesus is going into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. We see early on that Jesus was led by the Spirit. Matthew and Mark tell us that the purpose of being led into the wilderness was, in fact, to be tempted. And I hope as you hear that, maybe there's some tension or wrestling that you have hearing that the Spirit of God would lead the Son of God into the wilderness to be tempted, right? Because James does tell us that, what he tells us in chapter 1, he says, let no one Say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Right? Jesus would even teach us how to pray, and we'll see this later on in the Gospels. What does he say? Lead us not into what? Temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So there should be some tension running in your brains right now. The Spirit leading the Son of God into the wilderness to be tempted. So what is happening here? Well, here's what I want us to see from God's Word. That God, in fact, does not lead us into temptation in order for our destruction or ruin. God does not tempt us. But in fact, He does allow temptation to happen in order for us to prove and validate what we believe. To show us the power that we have over sin through the working of the Holy Spirit. We see this in multiple examples throughout Scripture, right? Going all the way back to the garden, Adam was not 
tempted to sin by God with the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But it was there as a test. It was there to prove and validate Adam's trust in God's goodness and provision. Other examples we see is Abraham and his son, Job, Peter. We see these examples in which they are not being tempted by God, but God allows them to be tested in order for their faith to prove true. And it's not for God to know whether or not their faith is true, but for themselves to grow and mature in their faith. So Jesus, in his temptation, was not being tempted by God for his destruction. Now, the devil may have been tempting him to destroy him, but God was not tempting him, but allowing temptation to happen. One, in order for him to be a great high priest. And two, for his faith to be proven and validated. Again, when we think about Jesus' humanity, we have to remember that he was made like us in every respect. And so even in his obedience, even in his faith, we see his trust in God's goodness and his plan. And for us, that's good news because when Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, that means his faith, his obedience, his perfection, all of that is given to us as well. That is the foundation in which we can be obedient and fight sin. The other circumstances that we see, and most of us could probably really feel the weight of this, we see that Jesus was hungry. We see that he was afflicted by hunger pains. And we see that he was alone. How many of us recognize that temptation for us, especially when we give in to sin, often come when one or all three of these are present? Right? Hunger. We have, I mean, we have a term for this. Hangry. And we justify people's responses and anger because we haven't eaten. I mean, Snickers has a whole media thing on this, right? You're not, you're not you when you're hungry. Eat a Snickers. But we justify our lashing out or our temptations to sin and giving in because we haven't eaten. What about when we're afflicted or suffering? It's easy to justify our decisions when we're in pain, right? This person should understand why I responded this way because I'm going through this. What about when we're alone? This might be the easiest one that we can justify why we make the decisions we do because nobody's watching, or at least we feel like nobody's watching. So we can take a look at that image, or we can cheat on our taxes, or we can have an extra drink because nobody is watching. So here are the circumstances. Jesus being led by the Spirit is hungry, is afflicted, and he's alone. And we find three ways that Jesus is tempted by the devil. Let's take a look at the first one in verse 3. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. So the first temptation that we see from the devil is that he is trying to tempt Jesus to doubt God's goodness, to doubt God's love for him. 
Do y'all remember the last words that were spoken to Jesus before he left the Jordan River? Or after he left the Jordan River? Maybe it was before. It was after he's baptized. What does God audibly say? He only, God only speaks twice in the New Testament. And he says the same thing. This is my son, in whom, what? I'm well pleased. Right? This is my son. You see the first thing that Satan says to Jesus in his temptation? If you are the son of God. If you are. The first temptation that we see from the devil is to try and get Jesus to doubt God's goodness. By saying, if you are the son of God, why would you be hungry? If you really are the son of God, why would you find affliction? If you really are the son of God, why are you out here alone in the wilderness? If you really are the son of God, why don't you take the stones and turn them into bread? Take matters into your own hands. Provide for yourself because it seems like God's not providing for you. You see, I find it interesting that doubt is the first thing the devil tempts Jesus with. But honestly, I'm not shocked by it, and neither should you be. Because he does this with us, right? Sometimes it feels like at every turn, he shoots his arrows of doubt at us. You're a son and a daughter? Why would you get cancer? God cares for you, so why doesn't he provide you a child? If he calls you his own, why are you in financial burden? If he is maturing you, why do you keep struggling with these same sins? Over and over and over, the devil comes to tempt us in doubting God's goodness for our lives. And he comes especially in affliction. This is why I think James opens up his book with the exhortation to the believers who are going through trials. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you go through trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. As he continues through the chapter, he roots his exhortation in this reality of God's unchangeableness. He says to them, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift comes from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. It's God's unchangeableness that he points them to, that he roots this joy that they must have in. And why does he do this? Because I think James understands that in affliction, it is so easy to be deceived, right? And to forget that God does care for you, that he calls you his own. That he is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And he will never leave you, nor forsake you. Warren Wearsby says, One of the enemy's tricks is to convince us that our Father is holding out on us and that he doesn't care for us. In fact, one of my favorite hymns that kept coming up this week, and it's, it's really the foundation for the title of my sermon, Tempted and Tried for Our Sake. But the, the hymn is called Farther Along. Anybody familiar with that hymn? I knew you'd be Bryce. <laughs> 
farther along, opens up like this, tempted and tried, we're oft made to wonder why it should be thus all the day long. Tempted and tried. When affliction comes, the devil seeks to deceive us and to doubt God's goodness for us. He's doing it here in the, in the wilderness, and he does it what feels like every single day. Seeking our ruin and doubting God's goodness and love. But this is Jesus' response, right? Man shall not live on bread alone. Now, I want us to understand, Jesus is not saying to the devil that we must only live on God's word and never eat. That would be kind of ridiculous, right? He, he recognizes that we do need physical sustenance. I mean, even after his fast, it shows us that he went and ate and was revived. But what Jesus is saying by quoting Deuteronomy 8, is that it is God who provides what we need to be sustained, right? If we know our Old Testament, we know he's quoting Deuteronomy 8. And what's happening in Deuteronomy 8? Israel is being called to remember God's goodness while they were in the wilderness. And what did God provide them in the wilderness? Manna, sustenance to sustain them. He's done the same for us today. He's given us Chick-fil-A. But God does this. And this is what Jesus is saying, is that we don't live on bread alone. We live by God's word that reminds us that he is good and that he will provide for us. He will sustain us, even if we might not see it in the temporary, even in our affliction. Brothers and sisters, we too can have this assurance from God's word that he will provide for us in times of need. And we can have this assurance that everything he withholds from us, he does in his wisdom. Remember how James ends. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights. We can trust him and we can fight the temptation of doubt by looking at his goodness by being reminded of his goodness through his word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through his people. We have the tools, and God has given us the tools through Jesus and through the Holy Spirit to be able to defeat this doubt that God is not for us. One of my favorite quotes from Charles Spurgeon says this, Do not doubt his grace because of your tribulation, but believe that he loves you as much in seasons of trouble as in seasons of happiness. We talked about this morning in our time of, of prayer before this gathering that we, we, we often walk through as believers mountain highs and valley lows. And in these seasons, it's easy to forget God or to doubt Him. But Jesus shows us that through His Word, this is how we fight that temptation. The second temptation we can find here, starting in verse 5, is this. Satan is trying to get Jesus to disobey God's plan. Take a look at what he says. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, oh, sorry, nope, we'll go, verse 5. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. 
If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now, anyone find this temptation weird? No? You've got the devil tempting Jesus to have authority over creation. I mean, he's literally tempting the second person of the triune God that created him to have all this glory. It's a little odd. But what Satan's trying to do is he's trying to tempt Jesus to worship him in order to receive glory, but remove the cross. You see that? Satan is trying to get him to avoid suffering for temporary glory. Disobey God's plan, and you get this. You see, the Father's plan before the foundation of the earth was for Jesus to suffer and then enter into glory. What Satan was trying to convince Jesus to do was to avoid the cross, avoid the suffering, and enjoy this glory now. And he's still doing that to us today, right? He entices us to avoid our temporary cross as we live here on earth in order to receive temporary glory. But what does Jesus say? You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. He says we worship and serve God and God alone, even if it leads to our suffering. The reality that we have to understand is that when we serve God, when we bring our lives into submission and service to Him, this is where true freedom is found. Despite what the world tells us, despite what the devil tries to scheme up and say that you are in bondage if you listen to the Lord, or the world tries to deceive us that we're not going to have any type of fun, we're not going to have any type of freedom, The reality is, service to sin and service to the devil and his schemes is what really brings us into bondage, what really enslaves us. It entices us to think that we will have true freedom, but in reality, it keeps us in bondage and a slave to sin. So we must do the hard things to fight this. We must pursue the disciplines of the Christian life in order that we can mature and battle this temptation of comfort and avoiding suffering in the Christian life. And we do this again by being in God's Word, being with His people. We do this in prayer, confessing sin, and not just a confession to the Lord, but confessing to one another, as 1 John 1, 9 tells us. We confess to one another And Jesus is faithful to forgive us. We do this in community. No matter how it might feel when we share it, we don't just confess sin, we also repent of it. We seek to kill it. We have to recognize that there is no shortcut. There is no silver bullet to Christian maturity. As much as I would love to tell you that there is, There is no shortcut to maturity in the Christian life. We have to understand that temporary glory is only fleeting. And service to sin and Satan and his schemes 
leads us to bondage. So we have to be vigilant, understanding this deception that Satan tries to give us, that if we lay down our cross now and pursue service to him, that he will give us glory. He's deceiving us. It's like the Chronicles of Narnia. Um, Early on, Edmund is deceived into eating the Turkish delight. And eating the Turkish delight from the white witch, we see that this is a highly addictive food, right? Making those who eat it want more and more and more, but never being satisfied. But even eating this Turkish delight also allows the white witch to control Edmund. Sin works in the same way. It seeks to satisfy us while never truly satisfying us. And as we continue to be slaves to it, it takes more and more control of our lives. So we must understand that affliction and discipline found in this life in the pursuit of Christian maturity while it may be hard, it may be difficult. As Paul says, it is light and momentary. And it is leading to a glory that will be everlasting. So that's the second temptation, to disobey God and to avoid, avoid the cross. The third temptation is this, to test God to test his protection and his faithfulness to his people and those he loves. Look at verse 9. We see the devil takes Jesus up to Jerusalem and sets him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he says to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Here again, Satan is trying to get Jesus to doubt God's love and protection and faithfulness to him. Again, if you are the Son of God, jump. He will care for you. He'll protect you. Prove him. Test him. What you'll also notice here in this temptation is that Satan uses Scripture. He uses that out of context, of course, but he uses it in such a way that it sounds just close enough to what God's Word says. Doesn't he do the same in the garden with Eve? But unlike the first temptation for Jesus to turn the stone into bread, here Satan tries to get Jesus to test God's love. So instead of, Jesus, you turn this bread, you turn these stones into bread, now it's, Jesus, won't you get God to do what he says he's going to do? and protect you, and care for you. See, this type of testing is more than just trying to get God to perform a miracle. This type of testing is to insist that Jesus would prove that God is trustworthy. Now, can you hear the same type of temptations in your own life? The deceptions that Satan might bring, your flesh might bring, I'm not sure to where to live. I'm not sure what job to take, what to do. Fill in the blank. We, we have these 
areas in our lives that we then, instead of trusting God in faith, we, we try to test him in a sense that we're getting an answer before stepping out in faith. God doesn't call us to this type of living. He calls us to have faith and trust in him. That's what Jesus says. You, you, his response is, you don't, you don't test God. You don't put God to the test. Now again, going back to our Old Testament memory, right? Maybe you've grown up in church and you understand the, the, the reference of the fleece in Gideon's life. Where Gideon is told that he will lead God's army and he doesn't believe God. And he was like, I, I'm going to put a fleece out on the lawn and if this happens, then I'll trust you. And it happened, and he still didn't trust God. And he does it again, and it happens, and finally he trusts God. So you might be asking, wait a minute, if Gideon does this, then is this not how we should also respond? I, I don't think when it comes to the testing of God's faithfulness to his people that Gideon is the prime example. I think what we see in Gideon's life is more of God's patience with him, not so much the testing of what God has to say. Because we are called to accept God's word by faith without requiring a sign. Jesus will show us this in Luke 11 as we continue through this gospel. I mean, I, I know that I've done this in my own life. I was thinking about that this morning of how often I might play dumb games where I'm like, man, if I made this basketball shot, God, you are going to do this. And then I miss, and so I have the same game, right? Like, I'm going to shoot this again, and you're going to do this. Or maybe we'll go to the gas station and be like, Lord, if this lands on $15, I know that I'm supposed to go do this. And if it lands on $15.01, you're like, ah, it's close. <laughs> and so we, play, we, we can play these little games in regards to testing God. This is what Jesus says, is you don't test the Lord. We live by faith. We're a people of faith. Hebrews tells us that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the convictions of the things unseen. There's an aspect of risk when we live obedient lives for the Lord. Because we're trusting that God is with us even when we don't see his hand. But this is what true faith looks like. True faith that is obedient and following the Lord is faith-inspired action in our obedience that God loves. So we're called not to test God. So we fight this battle of temptation by being reminded that we are to live by faith. And so Jesus has victory over these temptations. And this is glorious for us because in his, again, humanity, in his obedience, in his perfection, in his righteousness, at the cross, this is what's imputed to us. And so we now have the same power to defeat Satan and his schemes and the temptations that come to us. But what's interesting is Luke goes on in verse 13 to tell us that this this victory wasn't the last in which Jesus would receive temptation. 
He says, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. We know throughout Jesus' life, there was temptation over and over to disobey God, to quit, to doubt God's goodness, to test God again, all of the above. We know that through his life, but this should bring us comfort because the author of Hebrews tells us this, that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is where we find assurance in that last verse. Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So Satan didn't give up after this time in the wilderness. And we should expect that he won't give up in deceiving or seeking to cause us to doubt God's goodness in our lives, to tempt us, to disobey God. Because he didn't with Jesus. And he sure won't do it with us. But we can have the confidence that the power that we see in Christ in the wilderness has been given to us because of who we are united to Christ. But we also have assurance that when we fail, we don't have somebody sitting far off going, will you get your act together? But we have someone who steps into our lives and says, I know. I know what you're going through. I know how hard it is. I know this temptation and the weight of it. And I'm with you. Draw near to me. Come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is Jesus' assurance to us. This is why the, the beauty of the incarnation is, is so awesome. And when we celebrate Advent and Christmas, it's not just about Jesus coming in a manger, but it's that the God of this universe stepped out of heaven, put on flesh, and was made like us in order to comfort us in order to be with us in our time of need. So we have power and we have assurance. And really, guys, this should be a, a faithful cycle of our lives, right? We should pursue this power to battle sin through prayer, through God's word, through the power of the Holy Spirit, by being reminded of our union in Christ. All of this brings power to battle sin. But it also should lead to more assurance. That God who looks upon us looks at us the same way that he looks at Christ. My son, my daughter, in whom I am well pleased. And that assurance should lead us to more power. And that power should lead us to more assurance in our battle against sin. Guys, we should have immense comfort an immense assurance that God has given us these tools, that we have power to have victory over our sin, that it isn't just some life that we are continually stumbling over, but the fact 
that God shows us that we can say no to sin, that we can have victory over it, that we don't have to keep falling back into these same temptations. God has given us this power and given us this assurance. So let me ask you a question this morning. Do you believe it? Do you believe that God has given you the power to say no to sin? Thank you. We live in that. Keep saying that. Keep running to him. Having assurance in him. Because he is our great high priest. He knows the struggle. So let me give you some ways in which we can do this. If you haven't already picked up on this, I hope that this will be revealed to you now, but the first way in which we fight temptation is through God's word. By drawing near to him through his word and through prayer. And also being recognized that we too are filled with the Holy Spirit. If you have believed in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are filled with this same power to have victory over sin. God tells us in James 4, draw near to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So draw near to God through his word and prayer. But another way to fight temptation is through his people. Through his people that he has surrounded you with. This is why gospel-centered community is so important for us. Belonging to a people of God. So that they can point out where you may be failing or helping you in your temptations. But also so that you can recognize that you are not alone in this. 1 Corinthians 10.13 reminds us, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You see that first line? No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. All temptation is common to us. Your temptations are not new. Your circumstances may be different, but the temptations are the same. The essence and foundation of those temptations are the same. And we should find freedom in being able to share with one another these struggles in faithful community. And finally, we fight temptation by knowing and believing in Jesus, that he is our better Adam. You see, in the garden, Adam was tempted. And it's funny, he was tempted, yet he was not alone. He was not hungry, and he was not afflicted. In fact, he walked with God, and yet he still failed. And it brought death through sin to all mankind. Yet in the wilderness, Jesus was tempted. He was hungry, he was afflicted, he was alone. And he succeeded where Adam failed. And it's in his perfect obedience that we are now made righteous. That that righteousness has been imputed to us for those who believe. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as a in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. 
He goes on to say in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is how we battle the temptation to sin. Through God's word and prayer, and the power of the Holy Spirit, with one another, and being reminded that the greater Adam has come. He has made a way for us to be reconciled back to God by his death on the cross, his burial and resurrection from the grave. And this is what we celebrate every week in communion, that we have been crucified with Christ and we are now new creations and that we've been made free. So if you don't have the elements, I'd invite you to go grab some and then we're going to celebrate communion together. For those of us who have put our faith in the Son of God, the elements of communion are those sweet reminders of the reality we now have. That our sins are forgiven, that we are made righteous and reconciled to a right relationship with God, and we are brought into a family of God as sons and daughters. We celebrate that each week, and we get to celebrate that each week with other believers, foreshadowing what is to come in glory. But for those of you who have not put your faith in the Son of God, I, I ask you to refrain. Refrain from taking communion, even though it might feel awkward that you're the only one sitting there not taking this. But the elements for us as the believers in Christ, these elements are an outward sign of what we believe, that we have been reconciled to the Father through the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And much like Spouses, when they celebrate their covenantal union, they put on a ring. Single people don't wear a ring, right? Wedding rings are a sign to the world that they have made a covenant with one another. And so we as believers have this sign. But if you'd like to know more, and you are refraining, if you'd like to know more about this good news of Jesus Christ, I would love to share that with you. I'd love to talk to you more, so feel free to grab me after the gathering. But for those of us who will partake, Paul tells us as we come to communion that we are to examine ourselves. And we do this every week in, in thinking about either our lives throughout this past week or maybe even this morning or where the sin and temptations we've been given into we come and examine ourselves before the Lord. And ultimately, we, we take this bread and recognize that Christ's body has been broken for those sins. And we drink this juice in recognition that his blood has been shed for us, sealing this covenantal promise that God has made to us. So as we eat this bread and we drink this juice, we remember what Christ has done for us on the cross. So I'm going to give some time for you all to examine yourselves before taking communion. And then I'm going to read what Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians, and then we'll celebrate communion together. So take some time for examination, and then we'll continue in worship.
Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I have received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, this is another way in which we can fight the, the battle of temptation. Each week taking communion and being reminded that the old Adam has been put to death and the new Adam has come and given us righteousness through his blood and by the breaking of his body. So let's take communion together and then continue in worship through song. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at